Yep, that's all. Okay, so Corey, I'm really glad to see you. You've asked a very interesting question of, uh, about, let us put it in the phrase of pleasurable dullness. Okay, now dullness in general has to do with also sleepiness, but when it's got pleasure to it, it may be just that you're actually noticing that nothing much is happening and we kind of call that dull. Okay, so the question then you could answer by checking that out in the sense of uh, can you actually do something? You see, when somebody is very dull, they can't do much of anything, real dullness. But this kind of uh, state that's very pleasurable where nothing is happening may not be dull at all because, and you can test that simply by taking a deep breath. Just by taking a deep breath or noticing something. By beginning to listen, you may not uh, have uh, your eyes open, but you can start to listen. Or another is to begin to pay attention closely to the body. That when we are watching something and paying attention to it, where is the dullness then? Dull, real dullness is when we can't pay attention. We can't mm -hmm. notice. Now often, uh, dullness, real dullness, is heavily associated with meditation. People will get themselves into dull states. Uh, many of the meditation practices look like that they're intentionally done to get the guy into a dull state, perhaps mm -hmm. because he thinks that that's the, uh, the object of the meditation is to get into a really dull state. But uh, that dullness generally comes from one or two things or a combination of the two. One is, is that the mind is actually tired because we actually have been working. Work, whether it's wholesome working or not, we put in a lot of effort and the mind gets tired. Uh, uh, in modern psychology and education, they will call that attention span. And they know that young children especially have a very short attention span, yet somehow or another, schools are in love with clocks. And they ring bells and people get up out of their chairs and move all around and together and whatnot like that. And that the, uh, the time is normally an hour. Well, if the if a child's attention span is 20 minutes, that means that the teacher needs to be wise enough to break that one hour's class up into at least three groups so that the kids can pay attention to this. And then when they get tired of that, they can pay attention to this over here. And an example of that would be in a math class, it would be better to start talking about mathematicians from the old days than it is to continue to do the math because we've actually changed the subject, talking about old mathematicians. And so it's good to mix um, uh, Newton in with calculus because it changes the mind state that people are in. So recognizing that the normal untrained mind is only capable about 20 minutes and that's where people start. So if you're going to be in meditation, sitting there for an hour, more than likely two thirds of that hour is going to be set in dullness because we've gotten tired and we're not changing the subject. 
other than perhaps taking, uh, changing the subject by, by going into the unwholesome states like, when's the bell going to ring? I want out of here. I don't like this anymore. And so the, um, the easy way out of that is to go back into a really dull state. So that's one of them is, is that the mind does get tired. You can see that if you start watching for it, that you read something and then you get tired of that and you'll have an idea about something else. And then we'll go do that. Okay, but when we're in meditation with an hour, oh no, we can't go any place. We've got a rule here about how long we're going to meditate. And so we put ourselves in a state of dullness instead. Now, in that state of dullness, people can have all kinds of imaginations and dreams. And then they misinterpret those imaginations and dreams out of their tiredness. Oh, I just had a re- rebirth or a, a reincarnation experience. I do remember a past life. Oh, no, it was made up. But we would like to think that it was a past life because then it's of some value rather than we just made stuff up. So (laughs) that's part of the dullness. There is an additional quality to that that I've already mentioned in passing, and that is the breathing. That if we were breathing well, the mind doesn't tend to get dull. And so that's why I would recommend that if you do feel like that your mind is getting into a dull state, take a deep breath. That will help come out of that dull state. But there's also a kind of a dullness when really nothing is happening. There's not a lot of uh, sensory input or it's the same input over and over and over again. And we can kind of go into the word that I've heard used is a reverie. It's just you're, you're, you're still awake, you're still alive, you're still there, but you've come to a rest. And there's nothing happening. And so the question is, is that dull or not? Now, later, it's, not going, to, it's going to be obvious to you. You know what's going on once you've tra- uh, charted the territory. But in the charting of the territory, the way to figure out whether this is just nothing or whether it's dullness is because uh, of the issue of can you easily come out of it? Because dullness, real dullness, is not easy to come out of, but the reverie, you can come right out of it, jump right out. And so you can play with that. And the easy way to do it is by taking a deep breath. (sighs) And now we're right out of that dullness. So taking a deep breath is really an important quality right through the practice to continue to remember to take a deep breath. To don't let the breath get too shallow because when the when the when the breathing is too shallow and there's not much oxygen in the blood, then the mind naturally will go droggy. So limiting the the amount of time that we put into meditation is also valuable. It's better to practice, let us say, if you're going to put in an hour a day, it would be better to put in six times of 10 minutes each, a full 10 minutes of breathing and taking the mind out of the unwholesome and putting it into the wholesome and recognizing how marvelous it is for 10 minutes. We do that six times a day. One of the times to do it would be first thing in the morning, 
first thing, absolutely far longer than before you get out of bed, the first thing that we do in the morning is what? We wake up. How do you know you're awake? It's because you now become aware of the bed, of the surroundings, of the body positions, of whether there's daylight or whether it's still dark, whether the covers are hot or heavy or light or whatever like that. And that kind of awareness pops up very, very quickly. We know that we're awake. But being awake is not getting up. Yeah. That in fact, often people, after they wake up, they feel tired. Oh, I don't want to do this day or oh, this is going to be hard to do or oh, I don't feel like it or oh, I didn't get enough sleep or oh, this, that or the other thing. And we immediately go into unwholesome thoughts. We start our day with unwholesome thoughts. <clears throat> and so um, uh, waking up five or ten minutes earlier than we normally do or get out of bed and then spend 10 minutes pumping ourselves up mentally. Wow, this is going to be a good day. Wow, I'm going to be able to handle things really, really well. Everything is going to go my way. Everything is going to be really easy. I can handle that. Okay, so we start having positive thoughts, taking deep breaths, and then by the time that we do wake up or actually get up out of bed, we're ready for getting up out of bed. But most people get up out of bed while they don't want to get out of bed. They are driven by some desire or some work to do or I've got to go. I'm late for work, et cetera, like that. This is the normal way that people get out of out of bed, which is all unwholesome. The way that we've been living our whole lives unwholesome. So the first thing that we're going to do is practice Anapanasati for 10 minutes and get ourselves into a really, really good state for the day. Using words like vibrantly alive, ready to go, can handle anything. Taking on that real positive winner's attitude. And then when we wake up, it's easy. When we get out of bed, because we've already got the attitude to get out of bed. Okay, so another time that we can do that is when we lay down to go to sleep. I've heard students, even those who have been meditating for a long time, saying, I can't get to sleep. As if somebody is ordering you with a gun. I've got a gun on you. If you don't go to sleep, I want to shoot you, you know. Um, and that we're, we're kind of taught that from, from childhood. Put your books down, put your computer down, and go to sleep. Mm. Right? We're taught that. So sleep is then something that we do by being ordered to do it. And we have also all of this other stuff, scientists, they call it, uh, uh, scientific. Oh, you've got to have eight hours of sleep. Mm. Well, what you need is rest. And rest does not come by clock. Clocks don't define rest. We've gotten very clock oriented. That's one of the beautiful things about the teaching of the Buddha is we can really understand when we take the clock out of it. Because the Buddha didn't have a clock. He didn't have an hour to mm -hmm. sit because he didn't know what an hour was. That was a newer, con uh, that's just a contraption or, or a concept. Okay, so when we lay down in bed at night, 
we can have other kinds of thoughts that are more wholesome, like, oh, I've got no place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. I can just lay here and enjoy the night. And when the mind wanders away, we can say, never mind, we can come back and just enjoy taking deep breaths. The cover feels so good to just pull up and all. It just feels so good. And if we can have those kind of thoughts, then our dreaming won't be very much. But if we go to sleep while we've got the day on our mind, then that during the night, the, the day will be on our mind. Either rehashing what we did today or planning for tomorrow, and it gets into the dreams. But if we can start off going to sleep in a very, very happy, easygoing Everything is all right, no place to go and nothing to do, and I can just lay here and relax. Then going to sleep that way, there's not going to be very many dreams, and then you can get good rest from it. So from that perspective, we can say, well, I can add another three or four times a day on break. I can take a break. Then, in fact, I would recommend that people take a break every hour. Take five minutes off. That if you work 55 minutes and then work another five minutes and then work for another hour, by the end of that hour, you're not getting much done because the mind is tired. But if you can work for a while and then take five minutes off and say, wow, I don't have to work right now. I can just sit here and look out on the shade and the trees and look at the grass. (sighs) And I'll get the work done later. Then when I go back to work, I'm fresh again. Okay, so breaking up our day, breaking it up into small pieces like that and taking time off to give the mind a rest. That would be the a correct practice. But most people that work hard and run hard, they get up and they go, and then it's time for meditation and they do it for an hour and here they are doing their meditation the same way. Rather than learning, mm. just take the time so uh, this this issue of dullness, actually, in a way, um, the, there is this kind of dullness that's actually quite nice. It's quite delicious. That I couldn't bother to have a thought. It's a very mm-hmm. nice, comfortable place to be in. I just couldn't bother with it. As opposed to, oh, I wish I could bother with it, but I can't because I'm stuck in drowsiness. You see the difference? Okay. So yeah. if you can if you can see that difference and see it when it happens, then you've got choices about it. The whole teaching of the Buddha is to look at what we're doing right now because we do have choices right now. We don't have to do it the way that we're in the habit of doing it. We can do it some new way. Mm. Moment by moment, day by day, everything is always right here, right now. Another concept that I've heard of is the concept of deep. People talk about, oh, I've got to go deep into the mind to to get out those uh, habits, or I've got to get the roots out and things like this. And that's the wrong approach. It's very Western idea of trying to uproot something when really all we need to do is to prune. We don't have to dig the whole thing up, just prune it. 
this leaf comes off, that leaf comes off, this leaf comes off. If all the leaves come off, then what's the root going to do? It's going to wither and die. And yeah. you have to, everybody has this <laughs> idea that, that we've got to uproot the defilements. No, we don't uproot the defilements. There's no way that you can uproot the defilements, but you can take care of this defilement right here, right now that comes up. You're asking a question. Go ahead. Um, will that be a trademark of the Mahasi method, the uprooting? I would say yes, but it requires a, a, an asterisk. And that is, is that it's not the Mahasi Saladol Burmese method. Okay, it's a Western idealized version of the Mahasi method. <laughs> that the Mahasi, I first was introduced to it in this concept by Daniel Ingram, who brought on to one of our calls uh, that that uh, in the Mahasi book, he devotes a whole chapter to brightening and gladdening the mind. I've seen other literature about that from the Mahasi also. And that the same thing happens kind of to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And here's part of the reason why that happens is, is that the senior monks are uh, prone to teach the things in the same order that they were taught in the suttas by the Buddha originally. Well, the Anapanasati Sutta is based upon the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, and by history, and also you can think of it by scientifically, we start with the coldest thing there is. The colder things are, the more likely they are to be really solid. But if you warm stuff up a bit, it will become liquid. If you heat it up even further than that, it'll become a gas. If you heat it up even more than that, it becomes a fire. Right? Even water will burn when you get it hot enough. Okay? So, uh, if we can understand it like that, that, that means that that is the way of, of looking at it that is formal and foundational, but that's not the order of practice. Another way that we can talk, uh, look at that is with the uh, Petita Samupada. It is taught, normally taught, forwards. So you can see that this influences that. That then uh, conditions the next thing. The next thing then conditions the thing after that. So this is the way that it's taught so that we can understand Petita Samapada, but it's not practiced that way. It's practiced in reverse order. Why? Because the beginning student is slow and he only picks up on things after they've gotten late. And the better he is at catching things, the sooner he backs up into the process. And so this is all about getting the mind sharp and focused so that we can see things really early so that we can actually see how the mind works. And a good place to do that with is feelings, or basically at the point of contact. When something contacts you, you have a feeling for it. Is that feeling going to be ignorantly out of, done out of the old habits, or do you have some choice about it 
Well, you have choice if you wake up. Okay, so uh, the same thing then is true about Anapanasati, even though it is body, feelings, mind, and mind's objects. That's not the way that it is to be practiced. We need to figure out that the way of practice is basically stated in the uh, Eightfold Noble Path, not Anapanasati. Anapanasati Sutra is giving the details of what needs to be done, but not in the order that they need to be done. The order that they need to be done is set up in the uh, Eightfold Noble Path and also the Sambhojana, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. So if we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, it talks about it in the sense that right viewing, right looking, seeing is the number one item. We have to be able to see. And that uh, normally people don't see what they do instead of looking is that they remember old looking. This is what we would call a world view. Right? We have views, we have points of view, we have world views. All of these are just concepts. Real view, the Buddha, the Buddha's word for, for view is not a noun like a concept. It's a verb like looking, investigating. It's not an investigation, a noun. It's an investigating, something we're doing right now. Present tense verb. And with that, we have to go along. Well, there's another point that's very closely tied to directly to that. And, and that is, is that you have to be able to remember to look. Remember to be in that state of investigating. So when we have wake up and take a look, wake up and take a look, that's the Mahasi method right there. Two items out of the Eightfold Noble Path, and they fail to go any further than that. Mm. But the next item on the list that's actually in the Sutta is to wake up, take a look, and with right effort, make a change. Right noble effort is the issue that is missing in Western meditation. And without taking the right effort, if they keep looking and keep finding crap and keep looking and keep finding crap, they're going to be in a world of crap. Some of them call it a dark night of the soul. But if we do it the way that the Buddha recommends, it's also in the Anapanasati Sutta, is to wake up, look at what the mind is doing, and making a change. Now, in many of the sutras, it talks about removal of the hindrances. That's making the change. Other sutras, it talks about unwholesome versus wholesome thoughts. And when we see that the thought is unwholesome, like drowsy or dull, then we can make a change. Like, let's take a deep breath and wake back, back up again. Okay, so... Um, with that, we can also now go to the Anapanasati Sutta and see that within the Sita Nupasana, within or the Chitta Nupasana, there in that group is the investigation. But in this case, it's actually talked, by the way, this is normally referred to as step nine of Anapanasati. There's no steps to it. If there's a step, it's not a wall, it's not a march, it's a waltz. And that step position number nine is to investigate the state of mind that we're in, not the objects, but the state of mind. 
And then step 10 would be to gladden the mind, which means to gladden the state of mind, not necessarily the objects, but the state of mind. Well, the best way to actually um, change the state of mind is with an object. We take on a more wholesome object. So gladdening the mind has the quality of both gladdening the mind by using gladdening thoughts and also brightening the mind, the state of the mind that we're in. Do we actually start right from the very beginning to make a change to our attitude? But then big changes begin to happen to our attitude once we do these three things of wake up, take a look and make a change. Wake up, take a look and make a change over and over and over again that begins to build up a bit of confidence that I can wake up. I can look at what I'm doing and I can change. This is a real attitude change. That's important to wake up, take a look, see what needs to be done, make a change. And then the fourth item on the list is Sama Sankapa, which is to change your attitude, to change your intention, to change the way that you think from being a loser into being a winner. What are the loser's thoughts? Oh, meditation is hard. Oh, I get dull. Oh, I'm not sure about the practice. Oh, I don't trust the teacher. Oh, I don't see the value in meditation at all. I mean, I've heard all of this stuff. I could go on and on with the kind of stuff, but this is the loser's mentality. The winner's mentality is never mind, start again. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and boogie on down the road. That's all there is to it. Take the right effort to get up out of the mud that we fell in. We're in a ditch. So what? We see we're in a ditch. All we have to do is take the effort to get out of the ditch. And then the fourth item is, wow, I'm glad I had the effort to get out of that ditch. That ditch was a bitch. <laughs> don't need to be in. Don't need to be in that ditch. And I'm glad that yeah. I can get out of it. And so this is where the congratulations part comes in. To wake up, take a look, make a change, and congratulate ourselves. This is the eightfold noble path. Now we've only talked about four items. Where does the rest of the path come from? Well, the answer to that is the fifth item of the list is actually the results of the confluence of these first four. Because when we are able to wake up, take a look, make a change, and congratulate ourselves with that, then we begin to change the attitude fully into the attitude of a winner, of a lion. Not only that, but because we're not allowing so many unwholesome thoughts, we're not scatterbrained, we're not all over the place. So this is where the idea of unification of mind comes in, that we're no longer a crowd in that moment. We're a unified whole human being. We're not in an argument with ourselves. Okay, so let me give you some examples of where someone's mind is not organized, not in a confluence or not in unification. If we're in doubt and we have questions, the mind is not unified. That's a hindrance. We have questions. Oh, should I breathe in with my nose twisted this way and then breathe out with my nose twisted this way? You know, there's no end to the stupid questions that meditators will ask about meditation. And it's all because of the mind state of being confused. We're not sure. 
We don't know. Well, guess what? We can change that feeling of not sure, I don't know, into never mind. I don't need to know any of that stuff. I could just sit here and be happy instead. So that's how we would deal with the hindrance of doubt is by not having any doubt. And so when there is no doubt in the mind, then the mind is unified. But when it's in doubt, it's, is it this, is it that? Who am I? I'm there, you know, and we're all over the place. We're divided. We're trying to find a solution. When we recognize we don't need a solution, that we're already okay. We don't need to know. That we know enough. That's the whole quality of enough. Because if you know enough, to be satisfied, that's all you need to know. That's enough. You don't know. You don't need to know all the sutras. Just enough. How much is enough? Enough to be satisfied. And so that could be very little. We don't need to know very much. The only thing, in fact, we really need to know is to wake up, remember, to take a look, to make a change, and to congratulate. We only need to know these four things because that will bring about that unification of mind. <clears throat> the next one would be easy, would be to, about lying. Why do humans lie? We're very, very good at it. We learned it from the animals. Animals lie to each other all the time. In fact, war is the art of deception. And dog eat dog or snake eat mongoose or whatever it is, it's all about sneaking up, deceiving, etc., like that. And so whenever we've done something wrong, we want to hide that from other people. We don't want to feel vulnerable to them. If they're high quality and we are doing a screw up, then we want to hide that because underlying is fear of wrongdoing. So the mind is not unified, relied on. But in the, the path of uh, the Dhamma, we begin to understand that getting rid of the dukkha is more important than hiding it. That we want to hide the dukkha, but it's going to keep it there, buried, hidden, etc., like that, only for it to come up again. But if we can recognize what we've done wrong, accept that we've done it wrong, congratulate ourselves for seeing that we've done it wrong, then we're okay. And we can change it. We can see that we've done it wrong and we can make a change. If we don't want to see that we've done it wrong because we're afraid to be caught doing wrong, then we are doomed to continue to do it wrong. But bringing it out and seeing it and now that means that when the mind is unified, there's no reason to lie. I want to know. If I've screwed up, I want to know that I've screwed up. I want to be able to really have a, a, a ball. I want to have a party. I found something. I haven't seen anything I've done wrong in so long. Gosh, I want to see one of those things. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. that's the kind of attitude to have is that we really want to know what we've done wrong, and that keeps the mind unified. If we want to hide it, and lie about it, then the mind is not unified. Mm. So in the Pali, the word is sama area samati. Western mentality has the word samati translated as concentration. And if anything, it's exactly opposite of that. That what the word samati means is wholeness, unification. It's got all the features. 
Okay. Um, an example of that would be um, one of the ways to bake a, a quick cook stove out in the woods is to take three limbs that are about a two or three feet long, tie them at the top, and then take it and make a triangle, and then you can hang your pot from the middle, right? It takes at least three, at least three, and they're tied together at the top. The same thing is true with a, a Western uh, Native American housing called a teepee or a wigwam, where it has a whole lot of branches that are uh, tied together at the top, okay? That tying those things together at the top is what gives the structure stability. You can lean 10 or 20 limbs together if they're not tied together at the top, then any wind that comes by and the whole thing's going to fall down. Okay, so that unification is tying things together. And so in Samanti, we talk about it in the sense of gathering the factors together. And so we have Samanti in the first jhana. Why? Because we've got all the factors of the first jhana. And with those factors of the first jhana, the mind then becomes unified. Well, how do we get the mind in the first jhana? Is by practicing these four items on the Eightfold Noble Path. And so those are part of the package. But if you look at the word concentration, you can see that what we actually mean by concentration is removing things to get it down to the essence, to get down to the core, to get down to the bottom line, to get it concentrated, to get it small, okay? And an example of that is the example of frozen concentrated orange juice or concentrated milk. What do they do with frozen concentrated orange juice? They take the water out of it. They get it as concentrated as they can, possibly for shipment. But now here's the thing. If you brought that uh, concentrated orange juice and brought it home, would you drink it in that concentrated form? Or would you set it back right again by adding the water back to it to make it samati? Frozen concentrated orange juice is not whole. It's not samadhi. It's missing something. To make it samati, we have to add the extra ingredient that was concentratedly taken out of it. If there's anything, what that means is, is that concentration is exactly 180 degrees out of the kilter of what the Buddha's teaching actually is. And that issue about concentration is often associated with that dullness that you're talking about. So when the meditator meditating wrongly gets really, really concentrated, they get really dull. And they're not breathing well. That we think that the beginning of the meditation is one thing, and then the middle of the meditation is something else, take us even to a deeper level of meditation, which is where we want to go. And that's not right at all. That's the Western mentality. The way to begin to think about meditation is as we begin to do it, we do it correctly. And then we do that same thing again correctly. And then we do that same thing correctly again. And the middle of it means is when we're gaining the skills of doing this one thing over and over again correctly. Right? It's like a piano player who learns to play the piano, learns to play music by practicing scales, practicing fingering, practicing chords, 
no music in chords, no music in scales. But you can't play the music and learn until you learn to play the scales. Play the chords. So that's what we're doing in eight, in the Eightfold Noble Path is learning to play these chords and play these scales over and over and over again until we get so good at it that we can naturally start playing when it's time to play. Or we practice over and over and over again. We get the reps in. Over, we don't want to go lift really, really heavy weights for once or twice. We want to use light weights and do reps over and over and over again. So in that idea of the beginner's meditation, he starts this at easy and then goes to something deep and then something even deeper than that is the wrong mentality completely. What we want to do is start at the beginning, do it and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again until we're getting really good at remembering to do it again over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. The depth will come in the um, uh, the repetition, not getting heavier and heavier weights. We always want to keep things as light as possible. And so a way to do that then is recognizing that's a heavy thought. Let me set that down. And then you're out in the public and somebody hands you a heavy thought. You can set it down again. You can remember I can set that down. I don't have to pick up that heavy thought that this guy has. Yeah. I can remember I can set it down and make it easy. What we want is reps over and over and over to remember that I can rep. I can do it easy. I don't have to do it hard. So you could say that, oh, well, I've got a whole pallet full of bags of cement that are in the wrong place. The guy delivered them into the wrong place. It's nowhere near where we need those, um, let us say, four tons of bags of cement. It belongs on the other side of the property. Are you going to go out to that pallet all by yourself and pick up that pallet and carry it to the place where it needs to be? Are you going to bag, grab one bag of cement and take it? Mm. And then after you take it, you take a rest. And then you go back and get one more bag of cement. Okay, so that's mm. another uh, way of looking at it is, is that any load or any work that we have to do is just a little bit of thing right now. It's not a great big thing that needs to be done. It's something little that we can do right now and then do it again right now. So an essay of 10,000 words winds up being a one-word essay that we just keep repeating over and over again. It seems that the Western mindset is very much striving. We almost have to undo that, that train of thought that we're programmed to do. Right. In fact, this whole method is an untraining for the heavy and training for the light. We have been taught our whole lives to go around with really heavy thoughts. Oh, you've got to learn to read. You've got to learn the ABCs. You've got to learn to read because you're going to have to take a history class. Right? You've got to learn to read. And so they put all this pressure on these kids instead of sitting down with them. This is an A. Can you say A? This is a B. Can you say B? This is the C. Can you spell cat? C-A-T? I mean, this, this is easy when you take it one thing at a time. But instead, we load the whole show. 
onto the kids and then the kids grow up with this whole thing that they feel like that they're, I mean, life's a chore, life's a drudgery when they see it as a great big thing. Or when we see it in the sense of, oh, I've got to go deep into the mind. That stuff is buried. There's a whole lot of stuff out down there. Oh, no. We don't have to worry about that. The only thing that we have to worry about is that one up comes up to the surface, and then we can, we can whack that one off. We don't have to worry about what's all in the bottom. That's all, a, that's all a concept anyway. We don't really know what's down there until we actually go for the investigation. One thought at a time, one leap at a time, one little thing at a time. That's what makes it easy. This is a dead easy practice. Anybody can do it if they could get into the habit of doing the reps over and over and over again. You can put a smile on somebody's face easy. All I see, you, you just did it. That's how easy it is to get people to smile. It's an easy thing to do, but we don't do it often enough. Mm. All we have to do is mention smiles and people smile. Did that happen to you too? When I mentioned smiling, you smile, don't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's how easy meditation is. You just mention to yourself, hey, you can smile. <laughs> and then you do. That's that's the part that's so confoundingly strange to the Western mind because we have been trained that everything is hard. That enlightenment is way up there and you're so far away you'll never get there. And how dare anybody claim that he's enlightened because I know he's not. I know how hard it is to be there. And he can't possibly gotten there before I do. You know, this is the kind of mentality that we have. We get really competitive with each other when there's no reason to be. Because sometimes he feels like enough, sometimes he is enlightened, and sometimes he's not. Everybody's like that. And the question is, can we remember to practice? Can we remember to do it again? Can we remember to come out of our unwholesome thought and put a smile on? To look on the bright side of life, even if you're on the cross being crucified, it's still a matter of attitude. One of my favorite movies, by the way, is Life of Brian. At the end of the song, everybody's being crucified and they all start off unhappy. But uh, one of the actors starts saying, always look on the bright side of life. Da-dum, 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 da-dum. Okay, so here you are in the Western system, the society, you're all strung out. Can you remember to start singing? Always look on the bright side of life or you're going to stand there being crucified and hate it. Mm. It's always right here in this moment. It's, there's no heavy stuff buried deep within that we have to get all of it out before we can be happy. We can be happy as soon as we remember. You can come out of that dress and this as soon as you recognize it. You can just take a deep breath and say, wow, that was nice. Mm. One step at a time. Mm. One one step at a time, exactly. 
the Chinese uh, proverb is the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Now, that's not actually correct. The correct way of saying it is the rest of the journey. No matter how long that journey is, the rest of it starts with this next step. And you take that step and then you repeat that again. The whole rest of the journey, now that I made one step, starts with just one more step. Just one more step. I remember actually on, a, on the bicycle, when I was bicycling from Bangkok down to Watson and Mok, that on one afternoon I got to the point that I had to just say, just one more pedal, just one more pedal, just one more pedal. And here I am in this state, just one more, just one more. And it worked. Or I could have laid down on the side of the road and cried. So this is the idea that just one more, just one more pedal. You can do just one more. And repeat over and over and over again. Just re repeat, just clean out the mind and then clean it out again and then clean it out again. That's all we got to do. Very easy way to live your life. Rinse, wash and repeat. Rinse, wash and repeat. Exactly. Rinse and repeat. That's all we have to do. And so that repetition is the important part. Because otherwise we have the idea that there's a lot of work to be done. And I have so little time to do it. And all of those are just unwholesome thoughts. Instead, we can have, oh, there's not much to that. And I'll get it done a little bit at a time. Never mind. Start again. And so this is how you can handle that drowsiness. Instead of thinking that, oh, I've gotten myself into a bad state, you can say, hey, I'm glad I saw that. Let me take a deep breath and see what that does. And life then, when we keep practicing like this, life becomes easy. Life is an easy thing to do. All we have to do is breathe. There'll come a time when that's too much work and then we stop breathing. Well, we don't have to worry about that right now. The question is, can you breathe happily right now? When you're time to die, can you do that happily too? It's just one more mind moment. I can handle this one. It may be the last, but that's okay. <sighs> that's very helpful, Dan Ryder. Thank you. All right. Excellent. Well, keep practicing. Keep repeating over and over and over again. There's no problem here. There's no worries. Everything is easy. One step at a time. Destinations, they're very hard. They're far away. They're a lot of work. But one step, that's easy. Just one more step right now. Never mind. Take a deep breath and relax. Thank you very much, Tim Rodden. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll see you later. Corey, thanks for calling. All right, we'll do. Thank you. Nice to meet you. All right.